I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the Bible from the perspective of life in order to learn how to live the renewed life that we have in Yeshua. The book of Deuteronomy is a suzerain vassal treaty in many ways, and I hope that I have sufficiently demonstrated this throughout these lessons. This book takes the form of so many other treaties of the ancient world that were made between a high king and the kings that served as vassals to this high king. Throughout the course of this book, we have so far encountered five of the eight elements of the suzerain vassal treaty within its pages. Some portions, such as the prelude, taking only the first five verses. Other portions, such as the laws, rules, and stipulations, taking an entire 21 chapters. The other portions that we have seen so far were the historical prologue, which was covered in the majority of four chapters, the discussion of the tribute ritual described in just a single chapter, and the blessings and cursings for compliance or, alternatively, defiance, were developed over nearly four chapters. And today, the text that we will be reading will cover two more of these final three parts of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Those final three parts being the witnesses to the treaty, those who oversee the treaty and who act as arbiters in disputes over matters of treaty compliance. In this case, because the treaty is being made with the God of life and creation, the witnesses are not human, but rather are cosmic witnesses, which we will read of today. Arrangements will also be made for the regular reading of the treaty before the signatories. Every seven years, the people are to gather together at Sukkot and read the scroll of the covenant aloud in the hearing of all the people. Because this treaty was made between Hashem and each individual, then every individual was to be held to its terms. And since Sukkot is a holiday in which all men were to gather together for a week, this holiday makes the most sense to ensure that the vast majority heard these terms. It was to be read every seven years. Again, this makes sense, since every seven years is the year of release. The timing of the public reading fits the theme of what this law is trying to impart to the people. And with Sukkot being a celebration of the kingdom of God, well, we find that the setting of this reading also acts to a pointer to the purpose of this treaty. Each part of this instruction acting as a subtle reminder of what this document is attempting to convey and the change that it is trying to affect within the people who have signed on to its terms. The final part of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty is something that we will not read of today, as it is mentioned in next week's Parsha. The final part being the arrangements for where to deposit copies of the treaty. Something that we will discover is not accomplished in the normal fashion when we get there next week. These eight sections of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty all in place and all serving their purpose. And this treaty given for the purpose of consolidating several million individuals who are split over 12 different tribes into a single nation. And not just a single nation, but a single nation with a single God. 
something that was unheard of in the ancient world, but something that was needed to begin to align mankind with the truth of our existence. Because if we were created by God, then living life as it was intended to be lived according to our Creator is to live life according to His will. And the only reliable way that we have of determining His will that applies to all men who seek to truly be men as He intended is to discover His will as He spoke of it to mankind, and to then conform to these instructions in our own lives. Only then can we truly be human. Because this Torah was not given based on some sort of whim. It was given for a purpose. And this week, we will really dig into this purpose for the giving of this law. The outcome of living according to its standards. So let's open up to Deuteronomy 30 and read from verse 15 of this chapter to verse 13 of the next. Deuteronomy 30, 15-31-13 See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil, and that I am commanding you today to love Hashem your God, to walk in His ways and to guard His commands, and His laws and His judgments. And you shall live and increase, and Hashem your God shall bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not obey, and shall be drawn away and shall bow down to other mighty ones and serve them, I have declared to you today that you shall certainly perish, you shall not prolong your days in the land which you are passing over the Jordan to enter and possess. I have called the heavens and the earth as witnesses today against you. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed, to love Hashem your God, to obey His voice and to cling to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days, to dwell in the land which Hashem swore to your fathers, to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and the Yaakov, to give them. And Moshe went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am one hundred and twenty years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. And Hashem has said to me, You do not pass over the Jordan. Hashem your God himself is passing over before you. He shall destroy these nations from before you, and you possess them. And Yehoshua himself is passing over before you as Hashem has spoken. And Hashem shall do to them as he did to Sichon and to Og, the kings of the Amorites, and their land, when he destroyed them. And Hashem shall give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to all the command which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for it is Hashem your God who is going with you. He does not fail you nor forsake you. And Moshe called Yehoshua and said to him before the eyes of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you are going with this people to the land which Hashem has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you are to let them inherit it. And it is Hashem who is going before you. He himself is with you. He does not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be discouraged. And Moshe wrote this Torah and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moshe commanded them, saying, At the end of seven years, at the appointed time, the year of release, at the festival of Sukkot, when all Israel comes to appear before Hashem your God in the place which he chooses, read this Torah before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the little ones, and your sojourner who is within your gates, so that they hear and so that they learn to fear Hashem your God and guard to do all the words of this Torah. And their children who have not known it should hear and learn to fear Hashem your God, as long as you live in the land you are passing over the Jordan to possess. 
This Parsha is a bit weird, and I suppose that I should come out and say it. I have not been following the traditional breakdown of how to go through Deuteronomy for the three-year cycle. I have instead broken up the book in ways that I have seen fit in order to best impart the content of this book as I see it. So the Parsha breaks as we have gone through Deuteronomy have been breaks of my own devising and not according to any kind of tradition. But frankly, there is no one three-year cycle out there. As I was doing my research three years ago on how to go about studying according to the three-year cycle, I ran into an issue. There were three different ways of breaking up the Torah to fit it into three years, and that is only what I found. I, I'm confident that there are even more. At the time, I decided to use the three-year cycle as was presented to me by Tim Haig of Torah Resource, but I have not stuck to the cycle religiously, especially when it has come to this book. Because as far as I know, I am the only one who's recognized that the Ten Commandments act as an index for the legal portions of this book. And so no one else has broken up these sections according to these standards. And so I broke up the book as I best saw fit. And that includes this week, which seems to break at a very awkward location, and I did that according to a purpose. You see, the final verses of Deuteronomy 30, they provide some groundwork for some very foundational ideas that I would really like to dig into. One that I have been speaking on for the duration of this three-year cycle. In fact, my podcast is very clear in making this point, and it was in these verses that I first caught a glimpse of this shift in thinking. The other being one that we find reflected and morphed throughout scripture, and I believe is quite foundational to everything that we believe. But this Parsha, as I have broken it up, it also contains the fourth speech and a bit of narrative. And so before we get too deep into the profound bits of this Parsha, I want to cover these real quick, and then we'll return to that. And so when we return to chapter 31, we first encounter the fourth and final speech of Moses. And this speech is the shortest of them all. It's only seven verses, but the speech is one that God commanded to be done earlier. Deuteronomy 3.28 But command Joshua to strengthen him and make him brave, for he shall pass over before this people and cause them to inherit the land which you see. As Moses was telling the people of his conversation with God regarding his own impending death, Moses recounts that God commanded him to strengthen Joshua and to make him brave before he handed over the leadership. Two Hebrew words, chazak and amatz. Chazak meaning to strengthen or to be strong, firm, or harden, or even to fasten securely or to fortify. Amatz meaning to be alert, bold, courageous, or stout. And Moses is commanded to do this for Joshua, to make him strong and brave. And this week we read how Moses does this, not just for Joshua, but for all of the people. In fact, Moses starts by reminding the people once again of their victory over Sichon and Og, and then projecting these victories into the future. Hashem did this to those great and powerful kings, and he will do the same to the nations on the other side of the Jordan. And in verse 6, we read the command. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For it is Hashem your God who is going with you, and he does not fail you nor forsake you. After speaking to the nation at large, Moses calls up Joshua and speaks to him directly. And what does Moses say to Joshua? Nearly the exact same thing. Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8. And Moses called Joshua and said to him before the eyes of all Israel, 
Be strong and courageous, for you are going with this people to the land which Hashem has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you are to let them inherit. And it is Hashem who is going before you. He himself is with you. He does not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be discouraged. Moses strengthens and gives courage to Joshua by simply telling him to be strong and courageous. Now there's more to it than that, though. There is the call on Hashem's character once again that's leveraged in this command. Hashem swore to give the people this land. Hashem is going to go before. He will not fail you nor forsake you. A reminder that is called on later in Scripture as well. The author of Hebrews quotes this reminder in his final exhortations at the close of his letter. Hebrews 13, 5-6 Let your way of life be without the love of silver, and be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I shall never leave you nor forsake you, so that we boldly say, Hashem is my helper. I shall not fear what man shall do to me. A fact that we can all rely on as members of the covenant of Hashem. Hashem will not leave us nor forsake us. And this reminder is something that will be necessary to keep close in these days of increasing darkness. And the Parsha then ends with the instructions for the reading of this treaty document before all of the people who are part of the covenant, from the men and the leaders to the children and stranger. Any who are part of the covenant were to hear the covenant read every seven years. And in a society in which literacy was just being invented, hearing this reading was very important. But even today, hearing this document read aloud is important. Because this document was intended to be heard, not to be taken in silently. At least, not to solely be taken in silently. And that leads us to the end of the Parsha. So I hope you have a good week. Wait, 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 wait a minute. But what about the first part? Well, I'm glad you asked. Back in chapter 30, we read the close of the third speech of Moses. The speech that contained the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. The blessings described an outcome that can only be described as good. The curses described an outcome that can only be described as evil. The blessings being unified by the ideal of life. The curses being unified by the ideal of death. The speech that made the claim that this Torah was not too hard to understand or accomplish. And to finish this speech, Moses twice provides an equivalency scale of the curses and the covenant itself. In verse 15, I have set before you life and good and death and evil. Life and death, good and evil. And it is the commands that are described in this way. I am commanding you today to love Hashem your God by guarding His commands and His laws and His judgments. And the outcome of this type of action? You will live and increase. And you will be blessed in the land that you go into good and evil, life and death, the result of a proper application of these definitions will be life and blessing. Both states of being that can easily be defined as good, but which is not specifically called good in this passage, other than through association. But if you turn away, you will perish. You will die. You will be exiled from the land. A state of being that can easily be called evil, but which also is not called evil in this passage. 
In fact, the outcomes here are not described according to the scale of good and evil, but rather they are described according to the scale of life and death. Obedience brings a state of life and abundance. Disobedience results in death and exile. In fact, in these four verses, the scales of life and death and good and evil are laid out, but only life and death are described as the outcomes. Is there something to this? Well, let's continue on in verse 19. I have called the heaven and the earth as witnesses today. This is a subject that we will return to shortly. And what are they witnessing? I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Another set of scales. Once again, life and death, but now rather than good and evil, we find blessing and curse as the other scale that is being described. Therefore, you shall choose life so that you live. Once again, we find that on these two scales, it is the scale of life and death that we are told to choose. Choose life, and in doing so, love Hashem your God, hearken to his voice, and cling to him. For he is your life. He is your length of days. He is the one who brings the blessing and the curse upon those who deserve them. So when you look at the choices before you, how do you choose? Do you choose to do the good, the right thing? Or do you choose to pursue the blessing? No, rather choose the thing of life. The thing that will foster and increase life. And we see this from the very beginning. The very first choice put before man. A tree of life and a tree of death. And it was on the tree of death that we found the value system of good versus evil. Because man decided to define good and evil according to his desires rather than according to God's will. And choosing good based on personal desire will lead to death. It will lead to the curse. Choose the tree of life and you will be blessed. You will receive life. Choose the tree of good and evil and you will be cursed. You will receive exile and death. As it was in the beginning, we find that it is the same here at the very end of the Torah. A choice put before mankind. Good and evil, blessing and curse, life and death. We can choose to organize our lives in these ways. Now sure, we can choose to seek reward from God, or we can seek to avoid his punishment. But this worldview is all about me. What can I gain, or what do I stand to lose? This is the motivation of slaves and merchants, always seeking to better your circumstances in some way with little concern for those outside of you and yours. A motivation that is completely inward-focused, but a motivator for mankind. And so God speaks in this language. The second scale is one that mankind chose in the garden, good and evil. And not just good and evil, good and evil as defined by personal or cultural preference. And when we truly consider how these words are used in the Bible, we find that there is no moral impetus put upon them. They simply describe situations and outcomes. A storm is not morally evil, and yet it is called evil in the Bible. The state of an animal is not morally good or evil, and yet Leviticus 27 describes these animals that are to be chosen out of the flocks for the tithe in this way. All throughout scripture, we find the Hebrew word ra used in this way, not to describe moral evil, but rather to describe things that are not in an ideal state. And so when we take these terms and make them about defining morals, we miss the point. 
Because when we do this, then the unfortunate circumstance or the less than ideal item or person takes on the cast of evil. And yet we find all throughout scripture that God describes himself as bringing the things of evil. We saw this clearly in the curses. Droughts, famines, plagues, wars, conquest, exile, cannibalism. All of these things are evil, and Hashem claims to be the one to send them upon his disobedient children. Can God do evil? The biblical answer is yes. He even admits it, as we spoke of last week in the book of Isaiah. How is this possible? It's because his value system is not good and evil. Rather, it is life and death. Death is the great enemy that is to be defeated. Good and evil are simply tools. Instead of seeing good and avoiding evil, we should use the scale of judgment that God uses. And how can we know that? Well, because he has revealed to us what scale he operates on. He knows good and evil, but he brings blessing and curse. But when he does so, it's according to a scale of life and death. The tree of life versus the tree that brings death. It's as simple as that. And we find this reflected all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 38, 15-19, What do I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has acted. Softly I go all my years because of the bitterness of my being. O Hashem, by these do men live, and my spirit finds life in all of them. Restore me and make me live. See, for peace I had what was bitter. Bitter. But you have lovingly delivered my being from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, nor death praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not watch for your truth. The living, the living, he is praising you as I do this day. A father makes known your truth to his children. Jeremiah 21, 8-10 You shall say to this people, Thus said Hashem, See, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city dies by the sword, by scarcity of food, and by pestilence. But whoever goes out and shall go over to the Chaldeans who besiege you is going to live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for evil and not for good, declares Hashem. It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. The choice put before Israel here in Jeremiah is to willingly go into captivity and exile, and that is the thing of life. Staying in the city, fighting for Jerusalem, that's the way of death. Because he has set his face against Jerusalem for evil and not for good. Or Malachi 2, 1-5 And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you do not hear and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Hashem of hosts, I shall send a curse upon you and I shall curse your blessings. And indeed I have cursed them, because you do not take it to heart. See, I shall rebuke your seed and scatter dung before your faces, the dung of your festivals, and you shall be taken away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this command to you as being my covenant with Levi, said Hashem of hosts. My covenant with him was life and peace, and I gave them to him to fear, and he feared me and stood in awe of my name. Now, I could go on and on in this vein, providing passage after passage to make this point, some more explicit than others, but each speaking of the choices to be made as defined by life, and the outcome of those choices also defined by life. 
and that life defined by obedience to Hashem and His Torah. But I'm going to leave this topic with one last thought and one last verse. Good and evil. It is okay if we use these in a moralistic sense, because language does change. But we have to recognize that the moral scale is defined by questions of life and death. When we see these terms of good and evil used in the Bible, they do speak of moral values from time to time. But when this occurs, we must recognize that they are used in this way with an understanding of life at its core. Luke 6.9 as an example. Then Yeshua said to them, I ask you, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Yeshua calls it out right here, good or evil on the Sabbath, save a life or destroy it. Life is good, death is evil. If we're going to use good and evil in a moralistic sense, we must use it according to these terms. The Pharisees were basing their understanding of the Torah on rote obedience here in Luke, and when you fail at rote obedience, then you are practicing evil in their view. In the case of the Sabbath, healing is work as it requires an effort and action. Therefore, in their view, this was a moral evil. But Yeshua makes it clear, life is the absolute good. When we consider these terms, it should be on these terms. Will God destroy a good person? Absolutely, because those who consider themselves good are still on the tree of death. It is only by seeking and finding the tree of life that one can escape this outcome. And so with that, let's turn back to the beginning of verse 19 and discuss this topic of the two witnesses to this covenant, and then use this as a jumping off point to another set of witnesses of renown that are found in the pages of Scripture. But first, we need to recognize that calling the heavens and the earth as witnesses to the covenant that Hashem cut with Israel, it is not just a turn of phrase or a euphemism. These are His chosen witnesses. First of all, they are witnesses to His power of creation as He was the one who formed them, and they bear witness to His awesome power and authority. Psalm 136, 5-6 to him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread the earth on the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. As an example, these two things are the primary witnesses of who Hashem is. But that's not what verse 19 says. It doesn't say that the heavens and the earth are witnesses of God's greatness, although other places in Scripture do explicitly state this. Verse 19 says that he has called the heavens and earth as witnesses against Israel. They are the ones who are to stand in the court of law and condemn. They are the ones who see all. You cannot escape the sight of heaven and earth. And so the earth cries out with the blood of the innocent slain. Genesis 4, 9-10 And Hashem said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's guard? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It is the earth that vomits out the practicers of sexual immorality. Leviticus 18, 26-28 But you shall guard my laws and my judgments, and not do any of these abominations, the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you. Because the men of the land who were before you have done all these abominations, and thus the land became defiled. 
So let not the land vomit you out for defiling it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And when it comes time for judgment, it is the heavens and the earth that cast the first stone against transgressors. These two act in conjunction to oversee all things. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we encounter this fact three times. Once, here in chapter 30, verse 19. But this is only the first. We read of this fact all the way back in chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, 25-26. When you bring forth children and grandchildren, and shall grow old in the land, and shall do corruptly, and make a carved image in the form of whatever, and shall do whatever is evil in the eyes of Hashem your God to provoke him, I shall call the heavens and the earth to witness against you on that day that you soon completely perish from the land which you pass over the Jordan to possess. You do not prolong your days in it, but are completely destroyed. And this is not the last time we will read of this in this book. We will read of them again next week, twice in fact. The first being explicit. Deuteronomy thirty-one twenty-eight. Assemble unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, so that I speak these words in their hearing, and I call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. The second being implicit, as the song Ha'azenu, or the song of Moses, as it is sometimes called, opens in this way. Deuteronomy 32.1 Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. The first words of this song, that is itself given as a witness against Israel, we're going to find next week, is to call on these two witnesses that are described here to attest to the words that are being sung. And if we truly consider it, the heavens and the earth are the witnesses of this phase of human history. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The entirety of the Bible begins with describing the creation of these two witnesses, and this phase of human history will end with the passing away of these two witnesses. Revelation 20.14-21.1 And death and Sheol were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I saw a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea is no more. Heaven and earth will be with us until the new creation is realized. When death is defeated and cast away, so too will the heavens and the earth pass away, only to be recreated in the image of new creation, just as each of us will be. You see, these themes of life and death and heaven and earth are intimately intertwined together. And then all through the course of the Bible, heaven and earth are called to take up their role as witnesses. Isaiah 1-2, Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for Hashem has spoken. I have reared and brought up children, but they have transgressed against me. The witnesses being called as the opening of a book that speaks on the judgment of men. We see this again alluded to in the course of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 55, 10-11, For as the rain comes down and the snow from the heavens, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It does not return empty, but shall do what I please, and shall certainly accomplish what I sent for. The snow from the heavens and the water from the earth, being used as the metaphor that God is true to what he says. They witness against Israel. 
Job 16, 18 through 19, O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. See, even now my witness is in the heavens and my defender is on high. Psalm 50, verse 4, he calls to the heavens from above and the earth to rightly rule his people. Psalm 89, 37, like the moon, it is established forever and the witness in the heaven is steadfast, Selah. Micah 6, 2, Hear, O you mountains, the controversy of Hashem, and you everlasting foundations of the earth, for Hashem has a controversy with his people, and he shall reprove Israel. But as we have read in the course of the book of Deuteronomy, there is another role for the witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 6-7 At the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is to die be put to death. He is not put to death by the mouth of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death, and the hand of all the people last. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. When it comes to judgment, it is the witnesses that are to be the first to act to carry out judgment. And what did we see in Deuteronomy 28 when the curse came down on the people? It began with the heavens turning to bronze and the earth ceasing to bring forth fruit. And this occurred before the people of the nations then came to judge. And when we went through the exodus, the judgments on Egypt, they came from the heavens and the earth. The water to blood began below the earth and then was followed up by earthbound creatures. In the third plague, it states that the earth itself became gnats. Exodus 8.17 And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the land became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And from there the plagues progress upwards towards the heaven until the final plagues are a wind that brings locusts to devour everything, hail in the form of both fire and ice, and the lights in the heaven ceasing to shine. The heavens and the earth are where judgment from God begins. And we see this throughout Scripture as well. Isaiah thirteen nine through 13 See, the day of Hashem is coming, fierce, with wrath and heat of displeasure, to lay the earth to waste and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations do not give off their light. The sun shall be dark at its rising, and the moon not send out its light. And I shall punish the world for its evil and the wrong for their crookedness, and shall put an end to the arrogance of the proud and lay low the pride of the ruthless. I shall make mortal man scarcer than fine gold, and mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. So I shall make the heavens tremble, and the earth shall shake from her place, in the wrath of Hashem of hosts, and in the day of the heat of his displeasure. Or Psalm 18, 13-15 And Hashem thundered in the heavens, and the Most High sent forth his voice, hail and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows, and scattered them, and much lightning, and confused them. And the channels of the waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Hashem, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. For the sake of time, I'm not going to pursue this track any further. All you have to do is read, and you will see this over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. The heavens and the earth are the first to act when Hashem begins His judgment over the inhabitants of the earth. And the heavens and the earth, they are the two witnesses of the ongoing validity of the Torah. Matthew five seventeen through 18 Do not think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to complete. 
For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yod or one tittle shall by no means pass from the Torah till all be done. Not until heaven and earth pass away. The Torah and the prophets stand and they will forever stand until we are in the midst of new creation. Until death passes away forever and life is all that remains. These are the two witnesses of our reality. But there are two other witnesses of renown that I would like to address real quick as their existence and their ministry are pertinent to the matters that have been under discussion for the past two weeks, namely blessings and curses. In Revelation 11, we read of two witnesses who are given power and authority to minister for three and a half years. And these two witnesses in verse 4 are described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the God of the earth. Now, how do these witnesses connect what we are speaking of today? Well, these witnesses are given the power to kill all who wish to harm them, and they possess the authority to shut the heavens and to turn the waters to blood. These witnesses are agents of judgment as much as they are prophets of God's word. And these witnesses arrive on the scene during the times of judgment on the earth. But there's a lot of speculation as to just who these two witnesses are. There are many who say that they are Elijah and Moses, two men that no one saw the body of, and Moses oversaw the turning of water to blood, and Elijah commanded a three-and-a-half-year drought. In this view, this is these men returning to finish their ministries in the modern age. But these witnesses are described as two olive trees, and if we turn to Zechariah 4, we read of two olive trees that were pictured in a vision. Zechariah 4, 1-3. through And the angel who was speaking to me came back and woke me up as a man is awakened from sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I have looked and see a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven spouts to the seven lamps. And two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other at its left. And then continuing on, verse 11 through 14. Then I responded and said to him, What are these two olive trees, one at the right of the lampstand and the other at its left? And I responded a second time and said to him, What are these two olive branches which empty golden oil from themselves by means of the two golden pipes? And he turned to me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my master. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the master of all the earth. Two olive trees that surrounded a lampstand with seven lamps, and each lamp having seven bowls. Now these two trees are the two anointed ones who stand beside the, quote, the master of the earth, unquote. Now olive trees are representative throughout scripture of Israel. Uh, Jeremiah 11.16, Hashem has named you green olive tree, beautiful of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great sound, he has set it on fire, and its branches shall be broken. Or Hosea 14.5-6, I shall be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily and strike out his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his splendor shall be like an olive tree, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Romans 11 speaks of Israel as a natural olive tree, and the Gentiles as a wild olive tree, and the process of salvation being as a wild branch being grafted into the natural tree. Two olive trees. And so some say that this is the two houses of Israel, 
or rather the Jew and the Gentile, both witnessing of the same God. These are the two witnesses of Revelation. And then if we turn to the rest of the symbolism in Revelation, the two witnesses are also described as two lampstands. Now in Zechariah, we read of seven lamps in which the two olive trees stood beside, and we read of the seven lamps in the book of Revelation as well. The seven lamps of the seven churches of Asia who Yeshua walks among. And if we read what Yeshua has to say to each church, we discover something very interesting. There are two churches, two lampstands, that Yeshua does not have anything negative to say about. The church of Smyrna, the second, and the church of Philadelphia, the sixth. Two lampstands out of seven who remained true in all ways. And so there are some who say that these two witnesses are believers who are true in all ways and who Yeshua holds nothing against. The truly righteous believers like those of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now, one of these views is a passive view. If the two witnesses are two men, Elijah and Moses, or Elijah and Enoch, or two other such men, then this passage of Revelation requires absolutely nothing of us. We can just sit back and watch from afar as the events unfold on the TV. But the other two methods of interpretation do require something from us. In these views, we may get to be participants in the enactment of this passage. And if we pay close attention to what else is being said about these witnesses, it gets pretty exciting. Just not at first. At first, the beast comes up against these witnesses, they're killed, their bodies are allowed to sit in the street for three days while there is a party. And where does this happen? Well, it says that it happens in the great city. In the book of Revelation, the great city is always and only ever one city, Babylon, a city which truly didn't even exist at the writing of Revelation, so we know that this is symbolic. But then John names also Sodom and Egypt as the city of this occurrence. And finally, he names the city as the city where our master was crucified, Jerusalem. So which is it? Babylon? Sodom? Egypt? Jerusalem? What do each of these places have in common? They are each places that came under swift judgment from God. In Jerusalem's case, twice. John is simply describing that these witnesses were in the midst of places that were due judgment. And in Revelation, there is nowhere on earth that judgment is not due. Continuing on, after three days, the breath of life is returned to the witnesses, and they rise from the dead, and they ascend into the heaven on the clouds. Wait, what? They ascend into heaven on the clouds? Now, this is very specific messianic language here. Daniel seven thirteen through 14 I was looking in the night visions, and I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of the heavens. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And to him was giving rulership and preciousness and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His rule is an everlasting rule which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, I know it says in most translations that the Son of Man will come on the clouds, but the Aramaic word used here has a huge variety of uses, including to arise, to walk, or to cease. This is the same idea of what happened to Elijah, ascending into heaven on the clouds. And this is what happened to Yeshua when he ascended into heaven in Acts 1.9, and having said this, 
While they were looking on, he was taken up, and a cloud hid them from their sight. You see, Yeshua promises us that we will get to join him in heaven. And in the books of Corinthians, we read that we too will ascend into heaven and join him on the clouds. He promises that we will get to rule and to reign alongside him. And if these two witnesses are either all of Israel or just a cross-section of the most righteous of Israel, then these are the ones who will ascend to stand beside the master of the earth, as Zechariah puts it. And finally, as we have gone through these last few chapters of Deuteronomy and examined the blessings and the curse, I spoke on the intent of these curses being to bring people to repentance. Well, if we examine the book of Revelation from one end of the book to the other, we find all sorts of calls for repentance, but we never actually read of repentance occurring among the people of the earth. In fact, four times in Revelation, the point is made that men did not repent. Nowhere but here. After these witnesses rise from the dead and an earthquake strikes and destroys a tenth of the city, and the remainder of the people left behind become afraid and begin to glorify or even honor the God of heaven. The thing that the people of the earth are called to do throughout the book alongside repent. All throughout the vast destruction of disease, famine, death, and odd occurrences of revelation, it is the faithful testimony of the two witnesses of God to the point of death that brings about a change in the hearts of the people from the nations. Not the curses, not the judgments, but men being faithful to their calling and to their God. How powerful is that? In my opinion, this is much greater than a return of Elijah or Moses to walk among us. It is each one of us taking up the mantle of witness and going through the midst of the worst places in the world and calling out for repentance from the nations. And if I'm reading Revelation correctly, in the end, it will take our deaths and then our resurrections to convince the nations that our words are true. That is the power of the two witnesses. There are the two witnesses who oversee the covenant and who will be called on in the time of judgment, the two great witnesses to the glory and the power of our God. But we ourselves have the chance to be witnesses to the world of the great power and glory of our God. But the question is, how can we as witnesses continue to be faithful in the face of certain death? And the answer is found here in Deuteronomy 31. Because we know that Hashem will not leave us nor forsake us. He has been faithful to us in the past. He will remain faithful to us in the future. And he will defeat death once and for all. And he will reward those of his covenant with abundant life. Life that never ends. The true fulfillment of the blessings of the covenant of Hashem. But until then, all we can do is seek to know and to walk in the ways of life that have been revealed to us. So Dereshchai, in all that you do, seek the life from above. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare Shai. 
as we seek life. Shalom.